All right, well, would you join me in opening up your Bibles to the book of 1 John? We'll be in chapter 2 this morning. If you have a pew Bible, that'll be on page 1021. If you don't have a Bible and you feel like you're just on your own at home, look way back in the near end of your Bible. Um, it's a short letter tucked there um, near the end, but uh, it is a short book, but an unbelievably important one um, at all times, but I have found especially for our time where we sit here in the fall of 2020. But I'm going to start with a question. When was the last time you purchased something that had a lifetime warranty? Isn't that a comforting phrase to hear when you buy a product that if there's any defect in it at all, if there's any break, it's, even if it's not your fault, you can get it fixed for free. Or if it can't be fixed, you can get a brand new product, right? Only the companies, if you kind of survey who does warranties, only the companies that are really confident in their products offer a lifetime warranty. It's a, it's a stamp of approval on everything that they sell, that you can trust this, and we are putting our money where our mouth is. If anything goes wrong, we'll get you a new one on us. Because that's the first thing we think about when anything breaks in our house or our cars. That's the question somebody inevitably asks. Within two minutes of it breaking, what's the warranty? And then, based on who you are, if you're more of a paper receipt person or a digital receipt person, you start going to the filing cabinet, you're thumbing through the receipts of your purchases, or you're going through your email, and you're just hoping that this product that you bought 11 years ago somehow is still under the warranty. And almost always, it's like a month after it wears out, it breaks. It's funny how that happens. But I remember, um, you know, the, the product in the company Keurig, when it first started really getting prominent in residential homes, uh, somewhere around, I think, the early 2000s. So this is probably 04, 05, maybe. But my, at the time, my dad was the only one in our house who drank coffee. And so he bought a Keurig for himself for Christmas from us. You know how that goes, right? Like, he was not going to trust anybody else with this decision. So thank you, family. I will purchase it. And then he, Christmas morning, opens up the present to his shock. Oh, a new Keurig coffee machine. You guys are the best. Um, brand new in the box. But, but he wasn't paying full attention as he was opening it. And, and somehow, uh, in the minutes that follow, it's a little fuzzy in my mind. He either manages to just all out drop it, or as he's opening it, it like fell out of the bottom of the box and gets to the ground and shatters. And the first question you ask at that point is, what's the warranty? And you know my dad, he can't tell a lie even if he tried to. So he doesn't go and say, this thing came in a box and it was broken. I don't know what happened. He confesses like the whole story to whoever he has to talk to. I was excited. I dropped it. I broke it. And Keurig sells their products with a one-year warranty, right? Music to my dad's ears, literally feeling like a kid on Christmas. He just had to wait a few more days to get a brand new one shipped, no cost to him. You see, a warranty says not only do we guarantee that a product was quality in, when you bought it in the past, but it's an assurance that if anything happens, Provision will be made to repair, to restore, or to replace a broken product with a new one in the present. All right, where are we going with this one, Pastor? It's a great question. And I'm sure some of you are already starting to connect the dots here as we continue in 1 John and we shift from chapter 1 to chapter 2. But here's the other question, the more important question I want to know this morning. 
When we think about Jesus, we often think and talk about what he did in the past. He was God who took on flesh, who came and dwelt amongst his people. He lived the perfect life we could not live. And then for the joy set before him, he died the death that we deserved on the cross so that whoever would repent of their sin and believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. When we think about Jesus, we always think about what he did in the past. But here's the question. What is Jesus doing right now? What is Jesus doing today? September 27th, 2020. What is Jesus doing right now? Connecting it to the illustration up front, he's not kicking back, drinking heavenly coffee, not the connection, all right? But he is making good, if I could say it this way, on a lifetime warranty. Now, I say that cautiously because we're not customers, and Jesus is not some product to be consumed, but he is giving assurance that his work does not just lie somewhere in the past, but for those willing to receive it, he will never fail to follow through on his promise to repair, to restore, and to renew his people day by day. So are you feeling a little weak this morning? Maybe others know about it, maybe they don't. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, are you feeling a little bit broken? Are you feeling in need of spiritual and emotional repair? In a season where it is hard to stay faithful, for any number of reasons we can begin to rail, rail off this morning, my question is simple. How are you doing this morning? Like really doing? The gospel says that Jesus is not only our Savior and Lord, but he's also our advocate. And I encourage you as we dig into the, his word this morning, this is not just a mere theological lecture. This is a comforting truth that meets us where we are. So this morning, we're going to cover all of two verses. Thought we were going to do four. Couldn't do four. We got to do two. Just time for two verses this morning. And it's 1 John chapter 2. Let me read verses 1 and 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. If you're taking notes this morning, simple outline, three points. Each point is one word that starts with the letter M, as easy as it gets. The mandate, the mediator, and the mission. That's our outline this morning. The mandate, the mediator, and the mission. So we'll start with first the mandate. Remember that when John was writing this letter, he was not putting in verse and chapter breaks, right? Those were added later for the sake of readability and convenience. Um, so he, he's writing a letter like we would write letters, uh, just flowing from one sentence to the next. So here's what happens. We often get to the end of a chapter, and then we say, okay, we're beginning chapter two. This is a new thought. And, and, but, but that's not the case, right? The beginning of chapter two very much flows from the end of chapter one. So how did chapter one end? Look back down at your Bible, chapter 1, verse 10. He had said, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Next sentence, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. 
What's going on here? If we say we've not sinned, we've made him a liar. I'm writing these things to you so that you do not sin. That feels a little bit confusing. But he puts this transition phrase in there. Do you notice between verses um, 110 and then 2-1, he begins with this phrase, my little children. And it shows John's heart here that his concern for them was not removed and distant. He's not dictating orders like he's some kind of dis- like distant, high-level CEO writing to a multitude of employees. But he's writing this like a loving parent and the concern that he has for his children. You know, there, there's only a very specific kind of person who can say, my little children, to grown men and women. And it not be kind of weird, right? If I came up this morning and I just said, good morning, my little children. That's awkward at best, straight up disrespectful at worst. So it takes a specific kind of person. And John is that kind of person. Being the last living apostle who walked with Jesus, far older than the normal person lived back then. And a man who has a fierce long-term love for God, love for the church. So this is a term of genuine affection. And he's concerned. Like we saw last week, he's really concerned. He's concerned that the church will be confused by, quote, these things that he's writing. So what things are these things? It's all the things that we covered last week. And we can understand why, even if you didn't join us last week on the discussion, uh, on the surface, his discussion of sin seems a bit perplexing. Because he said, if we claim to know Christ, but then we walk in sin, we're liars. And if we say we have no sin, we make God to be a liar. But I'm writing these things to you so that you don't sin. So what do we do with all of that, right? How, How do we make sense of the Christian life? You know the times in life where you're trying to carefully explain something and you know it's going to take a little bit of focus for the person to hear it, and so you're kind of looking them in the eye and you're trying to have their focus, and, and you're just getting a deer in headlights in return. Sometimes with children, also with adults, like you, you feel like you're trying to explain something very nuanced, and, and you're just, they're saying, I, I hear you're saying words right now, but I got nothing. I'm not tracking with this. So John's worried as he writes, that they're going to get lost in the details here. And so he pauses and he uses a term of affection to kind of snap their attention back to him. Little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And in doing so, he wants to prevent the church from making these incorrect conclusions. Like, like an incorrect conclusion like, well, well, if sin is just impossible to avoid, why do we even bother trying? You ever wonder that? Like, if we're going to do it anyway, then what's, in, what's the point in putting the use in to not do it? Or one we might be a little quieter about is like, wait a minute, so if it doesn't really matter if I sin, because God's going to forgive me anyway, then it's kind of okay, right? Like, I know you, you're, you're telling me this won't be ideal for me, and I get that if I sin, or it might impact my fellowship with God, whatever that really means, but I'm still saved, right? Hmm, okay. And it's fascinating because we're seeing John in real time walk a tightrope where he's trying to encourage weak Christians 
while not giving false assurance to those who think they are saved, but they're really not. It's a tightrope. It's a nuanced discussion, one that takes really um, intentional focus. You know, there's two major ways for somebody to be falsely converted. There's two major ways for somebody to say, I'm a Christian, but they're really not. One is legalism. It's, it, it, it's one's thought that their performance at keeping the law, that their performance at doing good is the grounding for their acceptance with God. I'm a Christian because I do good things. I'm a Christian because I am relatively a good person. You know, that was the Pharisee's problem that John exposed in his gospel. And I'd say it's probably the most common version of false conversion today. People rely on their own actions, past and present, to give them assurance for their salvation. And, but second, and I think what John is combating now within the church in his epistle is called licentiousness. It's kind of a big word. It means this that people who abuse God's grace and say, well, I'm free to do whatever I want, including sin, because God will save me anyway. So it's the opposite problem, but it's still a false conversion at its root. Legalism uses obedience to justify sin. Licentiousness uses grace to justify sin. And both are signs of a false conversion. And John is seriously concerned of what he's hearing, that the church seems to have no real care for holiness, for obedience. So little children, he says, whom I love and care for, I want you to resist sin. Jesus saved you from sin, not for sin. And while we will never be sinless in this world, over time, by God's grace and the Spirit's help, we will sin less. Did you catch that? You will never be sinless. But over time, by God's grace and the Spirit's help, we will sin less. And John wants us to see the pursuit of sinlessness, even while knowing that sinlessness will never be had in full in this world. But he's saying, don't mess with sin. Don't make deals with it. Don't try and domesticate it. Don't justify and convince yourself that you have it under control. Maybe other people will struggle with it, but you've managed it well. It would be like raising a pet lion from its birth and then being surprised one day when it grows up, grows up and turns on you. And everybody else looking around you would say, bro, it was a lion. That's what they do. And likewise, that's what sin does. It deconstructs. It separates. It destroys. And it's real. And it's real for a church that's in the midst of a world that doesn't treat sin the way we treat sin. And we got to be careful to not be indoctrinated by a world when we view sin, where sin goes from this trajectory and this spectrum from going to be overlooked to then permitted to then celebrated. Where evil is not only not called evil, but it's actually called good. Church, we need the reminder 
in this mandate that Jesus saved us from sin, not for it. So that's one, the mandate. Number two, the mediator. Let's put together all of verse one now. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So again, picture John on this tightrope. Do you see him on it? He's trying to just navigate this really hard, nuanced discussion. He says, we don't want you to sin. That's why I'm writing this to you. But if anyone does sin, and isn't that the most guaranteed if statement in the Bible? Like saying if anyone does sin is like saying if New York-style pizza is better than Chicago-style pizza. Like we all know the answer to that question, right? If it's better, of course it's better. If we sin, of course we're going to sin. And this is the reality of the Christian life that we experience every single day. That we have been saved from the power of sin, but the presence of sin still remains. So what hope is there for us in those moments? What hope is there when we do give in to temptation? When we yell at our children or spouse out of anger and frustration? When we find ourselves on that pornography website once again late at night when everybody else is in bed? What do we do when we slander and gossip about others to make ourselves feel better about ourselves? What do we do when we keep worrying too much about money or our kids' future or anything that exposes a lack of trust in God? What do we do when we Fill in the blank. The first thing that comes to your mind. You know, John doesn't spend the time to specify kinds of sin here. He doesn't say, hey, the times when we really mess up, as opposed to just kind of mess up. Because we realize that sin does have varying consequences in this world, as it should, but all sin is sin in the eyes of God. Right? If you can't swim, it doesn't matter if you're five feet from the dock or 500 feet, you're still going to drown. In the eyes of God, all sin is sin. And then John says, in the present tense, this is important, in the present tense, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And I do think this is a very neglected teaching in the church today. I think it's been neglected in my own teaching and preaching And this is the answer to the question, what is Jesus doing right now? At this moment, today. And the answer is that he is interceding for us as our advocate. He's mediating. He's the mediator. The Greek word for advocate could be translated multiple ways, and it is translated multiple ways in the Bible because there are several English words that came from the same Greek word. And so the translation, the right translation, is based on its context. John used the same word in his gospel in chapters 14 through 16 when talking about the Holy Spirit, describing the Holy Spirit. And there it's translated helper in John 14 through 16. Here is, I think, rightly translated advocate based on the context of intercession. And Jesus, as our advocate, shows that he's not just some divine force to be obeyed, but he's a friend. 
He comes alongside us. He enables us to do the very thing that he calls us to do. Last week, I quoted a couple times from the book Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland that the staff is reading through. It's really just been providentially timely for this series as we're walking through that book. And so a couple more quotes here in this, um, for this passage as well. Dane says, The gospel calls us to leave sin. John explicitly says that he wrote this letter so that his readers, quote, may not sin. And if that was the sole message of the letter, that would be a valid and appropriate summons. But it would crush us. We need not only exhortation, but liberation. We need not only Christ as a king, but Christ as a friend. I think how often as a parent of young children, how my, when I see them doing something, you know what I often say? Just stop it. How about this? Just stop it. Just don't do that anymore. And, 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 and that's correct in a sense, but it's kind of crushing. It's my only explanation is just don't do it. Just don't do it. Do this. Don't do that. As opposed to giving the means and the reason and the equipping um, mental focus to be able to not do that, but do this. God doesn't just tell you to stop it. He brings along Christ as an advocate for us. And how can it be that Jesus is our advocate? How could we be so lucky, if you would put it that way? Look at verse 2. Notice again the present tense language. He is the propitiation for our sins. It's here where John connects the past and present work of Jesus for us. Propitiation, it's a word only used four times in the Bible. It's a big word. It's kind of an uncommon word, but it's an important word, and I think one that we should not so easily discard. Propitiation means atoning sacrifice, that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice that turned away God's wrath from sinners and paid in full the price for sin. Have you ever wondered this question, or maybe somebody who's not a believer or a child has asked you this question? Why can't God just forgive sin without his son dying? You ever wondered that or been asked that? If he's truly God, can't his love just be enough? Can his love just cover our sin? Why did Jesus have to die such a gruesome death? Why is death so central to the gospel message of life? Couldn't God just forgive without the cross? The answer is no. Not because God is angry and bloodthirsty, but because God is God. And he's a God of love and mercy And he's a God of holiness and justice. Just as it is not just for guilty people to go free without a price having to be paid, and we believe that in our nation, it's a hot topic right now, the idea of justice. And it's not just for somebody to go free after they've done something wrong. So it would not be just for God to overlook the demeaning and rebellion against his own name without justice. So he sent Jesus, 
who died on a cross to be the atoning sacrifice, to be the propitiation for sin that has eternal value for those who repent of their sin and put their faith in him. It's a past event that happened one time but has eternal value. Or you could say, if I may, that salvation that Jesus provides comes with a lifetime warranty. David Allen says about this verse, Our debt is paid, but we are ever incurring fresh debt, and we need fresh forgiveness. Or John Stott put it this way, we never need another justification, but we continually need forgiveness. And we receive this debt forgiveness because the risen Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf. And so so the the Bible kind of portrays this cosmic courtroom scene that is happening at all times, that is constantly playing itself out. In Revelation 12, verse 10, John, who also wrote Revelation, he refers to Satan as the accuser. You remember that? And he says in Revelation 12, 10, that he's the accuser who accuses believers day and night before God. I mentioned this last week, but every time we sin, Satan moves from becoming the tempter to the accuser. And once we sin, he's the first one to say before the Father, hey, you see that? You see your boy Syverson down there? All sorts of messed up today. He rebelled against your name. He chose his glory over yours. He sinned, and he missed the mark today. That's what the accuser is constantly saying before the Lord about us. And at that moment... Jesus steps in as our advocate and says, Objection, I paid for that. Paid in full, he can't be convicted of that. And the father hears the accusation, and then he hears the advocate and says, Forgiven. That sin won't be counted against him. It was already nailed to the cross. This is what is constantly playing out at the cosmic level. This is what Jesus is doing He's mediating day and night as the great shepherd, ensuring that not one of his sheep gets snatched from his hand. So again, church, this is not just theological truth. This is not just something neat to point out in the Bible. When truly understood, it leads to a confidence and an assurance that God is for us, not against us. Again, I have to quote Ortland here. He says, sometimes we sin big sins. And that's what Christ's advocacy is for. It's God's way of encouraging us not to throw in the towel. Yes, we fail Christ as his disciples, but his advocacy on our behalf rises higher than our sins. Let me read that again. But his advocacy on our behalf rises higher than our sins. His advocacy speaks louder than our failures. All is taken care of. So first the mandate, second the mediator, and now third, the mission. Let's read now verse 2 in full. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So my final question this morning is this. Why did John add that final phrase? Look down at your Bibles again in verse 2. Why add that second part of verse 2? Why say that? 
up to this point, he's just been speaking to the church about the way they should view sin, their own sin, and the redemptive work of Christ in their own lives. So you'd think he'd end this thought with the first half of that verse. He is the propitiation for our sins, period. But he didn't. He included the reminder that this truth and this promise of God's atoning work for sin is not just for you, it's for the whole world. Why did he do that? To put it concisely, it's because the gospel is about mission. The reminder of Jesus as our advocate fuels not just the way we think about our sin and our lives, it also shapes the way we choose to spend our lives. That when God saves us, we don't just become new creations, although praise God for that, but we are also given a new purpose. That when God transforms his people, he now includes them in the mission to make disciples of all nations who know Jesus and make him known. Next week, we'll see John tell the church that they are to walk as Jesus walks. Jesus is an advocate who, in his restorative work, creates Christ-like advocates. And in this world, we're called to worship, absolutely. And we're called to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. And so I wonder... If thinking that being an advocate and Christ being our advocate fuels our mission of advocacy, where is God calling you to be an advocate, particularly for the least of these? Meaning, what people or what groups of people is God stirring in your heart to come alongside, just as Christ comes alongside you to be an ally, not because you have to, but because you get to. You know, know, Christian history over the last 2,000 years, it's filled with great preachers, filled with great pastors and theologians, and they're usually the ones who are the most well-known, but church is also filled with advocates, most of which we will never know their names. But the one that we do know is a man named William Wilberforce. Wilberforce was converted in 1784 while he was already serving in the British Parliament And after God got hold of his heart and converted him, he thought, I should leave this worldly life of government and go into ministry. Until he had a conversation with an older pastor, a man named John Newton, who himself was an ex-slave trader before he was converted. And you might know him as the one who wrote the song, Amazing Grace. And John Newton had a conversation with William Wilberforce to convince him to stay and use the platform he has for good. He said, there's a whole lot of good pastors out there. There's not a whole lot of good Christians in Parliament. Stay. So he sought from that moment, as a result of his new Christian faith, to spend his life advocating for the least of these, particularly advocating for the abolishing of the slave trade and slavery as a whole. And facing significant pushback, it took Wilberforce 23 years of advocacy until in 1807, by a vote of 283 to 16, the British Parliament ended the slave trade. After the vote, Wilberforce sat down, turned to his colleague, 
Henry Thornton and said, well, Henry, what should we abolish next? And after that, it took another 26 years for Britain to abolish slavery altogether in the United Kingdom. And that was in 1833, and it would be news that Wilberforce would hear on his deathbed and then pass away days later. God and Christ as our advocate fuels our mission of advocacy to come alongside those in need, even and especially when we ourselves are not in the same danger that they might be in, but we want to come alongside, regardless of where it places us on the, places us on the political spectrum or ideological spectrum. It's, it's why, in times like these, I think the church can advocate both for the unborn and for minorities who face racial injustice and not feel like we got to choose between one. Because the church is not on a political team, our allegiance is to Christ. But as we close, we also see that Jesus, as our advocate, fuels our mission of evangelism. Jesus, as our advocate, is good news for those who are lost in darkness. For every believer has a mission now to share this message. That this is the breakthrough moment of redemptive history. That in Christ, who John has walked with, has explicitly said that the gospel is for all people, from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, not just for Israel. It's a breakthrough moment in redemptive history. That now John is writing, this is for the sins of the whole world. And this is not a universalist promise, meaning that everyone will eventually be saved, but rather that Christ's offer of salvation for those who repent of their sin and believe in him is made to all people. That offer is made to all people. So therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And the more we understand that Christ advocates for us, the more we are compelled and impassioned to tell others that Christ can advocate for them. This is the good news. And the good news is great when it can be for all people. So I close with asking the question that we ended the Reset series a few weeks back. Since making disciples of all nations starts with one, who's your one? Who's your one? Start with one. Who's God putting it on your heart to share this good news with that we are compelled when we understand it that we cannot keep this to ourselves? That God saves us and in saving us gives us new life with a new purpose. And that this Jesus did not just do this thousands of years ago, but this is what he's doing right now for his forgiveness comes with a lifetime warranty. Let's pray.